team. Usually these intros are the first thing that I record, but in this instance, it is the last thing I'm recording, so I am feeling incredible. Because you never think that this is going to happen. I, I promise you, half of a seed becomes a whole mini narrative that I live through in the week and I am on the other side. So, I can tell you, whatever you think this episode is about, you're right. But at the same time, whatever you think this episode is about, it is worth sitting in and seeing yourself in and having grace for me, the speaker, and grace for you, the listener, because this is not easy. It's not easy to be honest about the places where we need the work to happen. So, brightness comes at the end of the tunnel, but until then, we gotta get honest and we gotta get real. So that's what today's about. Thanks for being a part of this. This is episode number, let's call it 14. This podcast is called New Problems, the spiritual gift of encouragement. One of my favorite writers in the post-recession, pre-Instagram blogosphere era was Los Angeles's finest court reporter, Natasha Vargas Cooper. Vargas Cooper made confessional writing brutally romantic. She is most noteworthy for getting the scoop of identifying and then interviewing the mystery witness back when serial season one was a thing. But before her big break and subsequent battle with cancel culture, she was a features writer, looking for a story and waiting for a check. And she, with so much humility and her sexiest former theater kid voice, described for the Longcast podcast her writing style. And she kept it brutally simple. I'm an elegant writer. Hearing someone describe themselves as an elegant writer was a light from the clouds beaming onto my soul. It was my Saul of Tarsus becoming the Apostle Paul moment. That declaration from that voice became my creative North Star. Vargas Cooper gave me a mission. I want to say that I, am an elegant writer. That is my goal. That is my intention. Well, I can't speak for all that, but I can say that last week, my boss wrote me the nicest email. I was asked to give brief remarks to open her service. I emailed my two minute soliloquy and let her review before I made a recording in this windowless room on Willoughby Avenue. And because I practice writing, I've gotten better at writing. As Sarah McLaughlin once said, I'm fumbling toward elegantly. After 12 years of waiting for my minister's response and then avoiding reading her response because I'm so sensitive and hate having my writing critiqued and it's somehow unavoidable in human life not to receive feedback, she wrote back. This is exquisite. I am constantly amazed by the way you put together such important pieces into a jewel of a delivery. It's the kind of gift that makes an extraordinary pastor. 
and you are one of the gifted pastoring presences here. I'm so grateful that this will be shared in a service I get to lead. I hate compliments, so I fumbled my response and said something to the effect of, thanks. But somewhere inside, I hope Natasha Vargas Cooper would be so proud. Exquisite is a fine substitute for elegant, and in my mind, it still counts. I write too much at this point to know to shoot for elegant when I'm really trying to achieve something a lot more attainable, which is coherence. All I can really do is practice, steal from the right people, and do a second draft. Coherence is not easy, but it's worth the effort. But I trust that the Holy Spirit will one day make me an elegant writer. That one day Natasha Vargas Cooper will read something I wrote and think, that was okay. One day. Maybe. Today is not that day. All my elegance was emailed to my boss, and today, it's just you and me. Millennials with nothing but fruit flies flying around a half-empty can of Narragansett. My one-night stand with elegance is over. <laughs> because today, we're talking about envy. There is no elegant way to talk about envy. I do not even want to try. I do not want to waste my limited access to elegance because I am trying to make envy beautiful. Envy is so ugly, so vicious, so consuming, so shameful, so embarrassing that making envy elegant is like shaving truffles on Mormon jello salad. I have to save my shavings of truffles, which means I'm saving my elegance, which means we're just going to have to dig in. So grab your spoon as we fish out the nuggets of cube carrots in this green monster of jello casserole. I possess so much envy. I should never be invited to speak anywhere on any topic, eloquently or otherwise. My levels of envy should give you such secondhand embarrassment. Envy is so disorienting and dehumanizing, I do not even attempt to justify or beautify it. Because if heaven's will for the earth is the restoration of all things, envy is last on heaven's to-do list. Because envy is such an issue, even a jealous God doesn't know where to start. Let's define terms. According to Google Chrome, envy is a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. Works for me. I do not think it is worth parsing a nuance between jealousy and envy. Both are pretty problematic, except there are contexts jealousy is viewed as healthy, or at least understandable. Jealousy gave us the song, The Boy Is Mine. There's a place for jealousy. Envy, while relatable, is always an issue. It's an issue of extreme misplaced entitlement in your relationships with other people. It has no benefit to anyone. And yes, you're an advertiser. 
Pastor Tim Kelly, the country's most famous Presbyterian, explains in a teaching I listened to a few weeks back that of all the so-called deadly sins, envy is the one that doesn't even try to start to be initially satisfying. It doesn't even fake it. Gluttony is a bomb-ass sin. I like beer and oily cheese on carbs. There's a place for gluttony in my life. Anger obviously is self-destructive, but can have positive effects that other people get to enjoy, even if it destroys the angry person. Depending on the situation, greedy people are so intolerable, but at least they have good snacks in their pantries. Even confessing your sin is one of the noblest spiritual practices. Confession is universally affirmed in every major faith tradition. And there are whole book industries where people write about their addictions and their wickedness. It's almost inspiring because honesty is awesome. You may be an alcoholic, a cheater, and abandon your kids when they were seven, but at least you confessed. And we got a good story. But confessing envy is so different. You get nothing out of that. I cannot express envy as a way to grow in community. No one has ever told me, Rob, I'm envious of you. And I've never told them back, hey, I'm envious of you. Let's get a slice of pizza. Because it would make us all cringe. Like a sleeping bag of styrofoam. We exist in community because we keep our envy to ourselves. I didn't realize I had an envy problem until two weeks ago. Because I have other issues. And I do not really think about the things I do not have. I do not care about sneakers, cars, watches, or how many channels I have. I don't consume shit or aspire to consume more or better shit. I'm a simple man, drinking Turkey Hill Diet iced tea and watching the English Premier League using a seven day free streaming trial. I will cancel what I'm done with this. I'm happy enough if you have cable with wires. I'm happy enough if you have cable with a satellite dish. All together, we're all fine and we can be friends. Which is to say, envy may not apply to me in a traditional sense, but oh, envy applies. Because I'm not an idiot and I live in a windowless room and I have discovered what I'm envious of. And I'm envious of people's dignity. Let me explain. Once upon a Friday night, I was a man without God meeting a woman I met from Tinder named Fiona. I don't remember what our pre-meet conversation was, but she must have been a just go with it kind of woman because we met after a few hours after initially matching. No questions asked. I saw her. She was black-haired, 5'11", and she could have been six feet tall, but might have been lying because she didn't want to intimidate men like me who are 5'10 and a half inches. She had the hips and the attitude of a woman who could have carried six kids back on the prairie. Except she didn't work or live from the prairie, she was back in New York after getting an economics degree in Malaysia. 
She had been to dozens of countries. She was so educated, so smart. Her favorite drink was tequila soda. She was Women's History Month personified. She was brainy and cocky and so over tender, but she had so much time to spare in her 24-hour day that she could make some time for me on a random weekend night. Which is not to say that getting a tequila soda with Fiona was easy, because I'm a simple man, and I think tequila soda is a completely made-up drink. I'm just a dude with a Narragansett that liked her hair. That is not what our night was gonna be about because whatever she thought she was running into, all this was not what she was expecting. I'm not really intimidated by people, but when I'm confronted with a certain level of what I call seriousness, it's going to make me ying that yang and get silly, which she hated. I was all over the place kind of hyper and awkward and not at all elegant and all just saying kind of slightly interesting, slightly overstated random questions. Even for a low stakes sort of night, this was not going well. But an hour into our conversation, I had a revelation. I put my hands together and lowered my gaze and leaned in surrounded by dozens of people in a random God-blessed bar in Brooklyn, and whispered with a strange amount of insightfulness and confidence, so matter-of-factly, do we hate each other? She smiled. Maybe. I might have been robbed without God back then, but I wasn't an idiot. And while everyone in their hearts is looking for love, Hate is hot, and acknowledging that hate was our path forward. I relaxed. Fiona had more fun. We hated each other. Suddenly, we had a common read on the situation, and we chatted, and it was cool. 60 minutes later, we kissed. 90 minutes later was last call. 120 minutes later, it was 4 a.m., and we hugged, and we left. I got a great story, and I got soon home enough to wake up by 9.25 and make it to church by 9.30. This story is hopefully kind of funny. Two people, different perspectives, hating each other, kissing it off. When I meet the Fionas of my life, I can acknowledge interesting differences. I can hate them and want to indulge on that hate. Hate is a fucked up way forward, but at least it's a way somewhere. But had I asked, do I envy you? She would not have kissed me. <laughs> she would have guzzled her tequila soda and turned to the dude on her left and left me staring at the reflection of my working class poverty at the bottom of my pine glass. Because expressing envy takes you nowhere because no one knows how to affirm or address envy without acknowledging their own envy which no one wants to do. Keller explained that in his life as a pastor, of all the things his congregants ask him and tell him that he should be preaching on, politics or Israel or gay marriage or whatever Presbyterians want to push, 
No one has ever asked him to preach on envy, which makes sense. People care more about what they think I need to hear than what they need to hear. Envy is also tricky because you can mask it in admiration. Of course I like Fiona. Society likes Fiona. I can recognize something about her I do not recognize in myself and say, hey, well done. She can be taken seriously. Fiona can arrive at any bar or any conference, literally anywhere in the civilized world, and know that she belongs. And I envy that. I envy people with dignity that comes from knowing they'll be taken seriously because I'm a black guy in Williamsburg filled with people at a bar who grew up listening to pop punk music and now I'm a member of a church where everyone went to Mike Pence University. So no matter if I'm at the bar or at the church, I have to overthink my explanation of why I am allowed to be here and what makes me belong and I hate that. Envy should have been a part of Rob Without God's life, but that was the last decade. I am in the kingdom of God now, a child of God amongst the people of God where every nation and tribe and tongue in the universe can come together. His banner over us is love. And so my sense of belonging should have changed, but the envy has not, because I want to be taken seriously in the kingdom of God. And no one gets more seriously taken in the kingdom of God than a white man with a Bible. Let me explain. In the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? A trio of runaway jailbirds in the Depression-era South stumble upon a cult-like scene of tranquil disciples dressed in white robes, one by one, entering a small river and being baptized, with the sound of Alison Krauss singing ethereal country music in the background. One jailbird jumped at the chance of salvation. He rushed toward the water, got dunk and emerged, beaming and drenched, asking his partners to join him. The water is fine, he claimed. George Clooney, the realist of the group, was perplexed. We can't be jailbirds and be forgiven of all this. Not so, the redeemed one explained, and he confessed everything. But I thought you were innocent of those charges, George Clooney pushed back. The baptized one got sober. Well, I was lying. And I'm washed of that too. This scene is a helpful way of understanding multiple strands of Protestant Christianity in America. We're a collection of runaways emerging from our baptisms with so much conviction and confidence and false clarity with none of the self-awareness. The way Christianity is presented, you would assume Christianity is a gift white men are magnanimously sharing with the world. The fathers of the faith emerged from their baptism with a mandate and told Alison Krauss to stop singing because their sons with long hair, an electric guitar, and tattoos are here to start a spin-off location in Manhattan. Because they started speaking, white men emerged like the runaway jailbreak, assured of their sinlessness, and therefore ready for a microphone. I know these people. This is what my faith tradition was built around. 
My father was a Christian missionary who caucused with Bible-believing fundamentalists. God said it, I believe it, that settled us. My father caucused with the fundamentalist with no real inherited dignity he could walk into these spaces in. He was just a regular black kid from Milwaukee. And so he was going to have to out-Bible the Bible thumpers. My father was a pastor who could not just teach any old sermon that could have just been a Sunday school class. My father didn't preach any of the stories of Jesus of Nazareth in the Gospels. Baptist preachers preach something they consider the full gospel, which basically means the more obscure, the more God approves. Leviticus, Jeremiah, 2 Corinthians, bring it on. My father used phrases like messianic prophecy. He used messianic prophecy 20 times more than he'd say something like, God is love, because any old kid could say God is love. But a messianic prophecy, or writings in the Hebrew Bibles, Christians argue, describe, and predict the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah, is taking the Bible most seriously, and therefore gives them the most authority. My father loved Hebrew, he learned Greek, he loved the concordance, which outlines every reference of any word in the King James Version of the Bible. He would say things like, you can't pick and choose from the Bible, and the Bible always wins, no matter whether you like it or not. Obviously, there are personality types that geek out on information and learning things and getting geeky. That's fine. This is God's design, and it might have been God's design for my father. It is an expression of the glory of God. Nerdiness is fine. I did pretty okay on my SATs, so I'm not necessarily envious of anyone's intellect. But my father had to have known that his professional ability to work within his denomination meant that he needed to get super on board with the authority of scripture. He could not feed his family unless his patients were convinced he was adequately on board with their interpretation and application of what con constituted God's word. One church actually pulled their monthly financial support to his ministry when they received his updare prayer card with his little cute black family on it. And a verse on the back had a King James Version verse on it. And it was not the King James Version, which is the verse and translation they supported. That's terrifying. When black people argue they professionally have to be twice, twice as good to get half as far, this is absolutely true in the Christian church. Because religion is a generation of interpolators. A pastor reads a scripture defines what a key verb means in Greek to affirm their scriptural bona fides and quotes a white scholar on its application. A black voice has to master this formula if they're going to get it to the front of the room. The suspicion my denomination has about other Christians and their fidelity to the full gospel is practically problematic. When I was a missionary kid, I sat and listened to my parents explain how some mission collectives would send their missionaries to teach the peoples of the world English so they then would be able to read the King James Version of the Bible for themselves. No translation would be good enough, and no translation in their own language would be good enough, because whiteness is the Bible's safest space. And we cannot trust the Bible and the Holy Spirit enough to keep a Bible in a black person's hands without having a white 
big brother nearby. When I was a teenager and fully and thoroughly indifferent to the work and psychology of Christian mission, I remembered my mother describing my father's relationship to the Bible. He has mastered it, she explained. This was his Natasha Vargas Cooper admission of clarity moment. He was now big brother. He had mastered the scriptures. He could interpolate and be interpolated in accordance with our denomination's sense and confidence of how the Bible is supposed to go. Of course, my father has not wished me a happy birthday in 12 years because even if he's mastered Bible, any dignity and authority that comes with that has had zero impact on our relationship. He's a man with just the right religion. And all together, it's just him in a concordance. And it's just me making a podcast on a Sunday morning. In the words of my sensei, Joe Budden, this bothers me. Not because my father doesn't wish me happy birthday. It's just the revelation that I will never be a big brother about the Bible. Because I did not go to Mike Pence University. Because I never want direct deposit from Mike Pence University. When Christians outsource their spiritual authority for the confidence that comes from whiteness, I envy that. Because whiteness may be made up, but it's everywhere. And there is no white legacy or ethnic legacy or spiritual legacy. I can wear it like a pair of Wrangler jeans from JC Penney's every morning and feel I belong in a white Christian room. I may like my skinny jeans in Brooklyn, but I envy the Wranglers. This is embarrassing. Being the son of a fundamentalist missionary embarrasses me. Envy is embarrassing because I don't want to be white, but I can understand and see how whiteness in the kingdom of God works. I could try to justify or make people apologize to me or try to guilt someone for making me feel this way, but that's stupid. This podcast is embarrassing. Envy is embarrassing. I'm embarrassed by my question to Fiona. I'm envious of pastors and small group leaders because of the color of their skin and their convictions about the translation of the holy scriptures they prefer. This is embarrassing. Envy is putting a fresh paint of... Envy is putting fresh paint over layers of fresh paint over layers of fresh paint in a windowless room so I can see everything so clearly, but the fumes get thicker and thicker. And I might feel right, but I can't breathe in and I can't breathe out because I'm obviously in the wrong. Me asking Fiona if I hate her is psychotic. I wasted my Saturday in the windowless room yesterday because I knew I had to finish all this writing and it is so debilitating. White men with Bibles are some of the most essential people in my life. My pastor is white and he's a phenom. We are like family. Making a podcast about envying white men with Bibles is shameful because a white person gave me the Bible that I have and I like it. And I appreciate 
appreciate having his scribbles beneath my new scribbles. They're gifts of God to me. They're irreplaceable. All this to say, I shouldn't be allowed in civilized society. <laughs> Stop listening to this podcast. Fuck elegance. I will never get an economics degree in Malaysia. I will never learn what the word exegesis means, and I will never exegete. And I will never drink tequila sodas. But I will say this. The most graceful, elegant woman I know is Pamela. She's a Buddhist teacher and at the end, and an end-of-life chaplet and a mom to kids who are amazing at sports and baking. Really amazing family. And she's a Steelers fan and still so likable. If you listen to Pamela teach for 10 minutes, you will instantly want to become a Buddhist. Because you really just want to be like Pamela. But last week she confessed that she has a friend that she's envious of. And not like once or twice. This is like a recurring thing, her envy. While she was rushing home and figuring out what to feed her family for dinner, she passed a group of New Yorkers casually eating dinner on the new streets that of outline dining in the Upper East Side. And she saw her rival, her friend, in the thick of all the New Yorkers outside eating romance. And she got envious. This shocked me. I refuse to believe that Pamela could have these basic millennial emotions. Hearing my hero discuss envy almost made me sad. But it did give me courage. Because if you can be a Buddhist and study how to master the mind and all the negative emotions, and still on a random day get triggered, hell, I can get triggered too. But this is what Pamela says. The antidote to envy is rejoicing. Rejoice for that person. Her friend enjoys dinner and works hard and doesn't have an easy like. So when I see her on a random night enjoying life, I have to rejoice for her. And Pamela says in her rejoicing, that's when she feels a lightness again. And because I have the spiritual gift of faith and faith is trust, I have to be able to rejoice in your life and rejoice for Fiona and rejoice for white men with Bibles because I have to trust that God ordains your life as it is and that that life is rooted in the purpose of a loving father. I have to agree with what God says about you, which means I have to rejoice with God how you are. It's not easy. I was reading from Mark last week, and Jesus of Nazareth was perplexed by a father timidly asking for a miracle. And Jesus wondered how long he'd have to deal with these faithless people. The father instantly replies, I believe, but help my unbelief. This is my prayer for myself about envy. I believe what God says about me but help my unbelief. I cannot import my sense of dignity from my father or my denomination or my country of origin because these all embarrass me. But I believe God says to abide that apart from God, I can do nothing and I'm invited to rest under a banner of love and the dignity I feel is the sign and the person of that banner. Envy makes it hard to see it though. So help my unbelief. Jesus told his bickering disciples who were debating who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God to shut up. 
He explained it so easily. Anyone who wants to be first must be last and servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. You know, I always just thought about the scripture as if it's just Jesus having compassion for the child. But the more you understand just how kind of embarrassing the disciples are, I think Jesus actually says, no, you guys need to be worried more about the child and less about each other. But there is so much wisdom in this direction because Jesus actually lifts the child in that room, which means then the kid is embracing Jesus back. The miracle in serving the last and being servant of all is that we give people something worth embracing. If I offer dignity to the world, I may get a handshake back. If I offer intellect and accomplishment and elegance to the world, maybe I'll get a kiss back, even if it's from an enemy. But when I embrace the world like a child with no status or reputation to protect, I then can be embraced in return. Because kids don't care about my LinkedIn. They don't care about what I ordered at the bar or where I got an economics degree from. If I hug in accordance with a concordance, I literally will get that shoved in my face. Their sense of trust and safety is in your presence. This is what the kingdom of God looks like when you know your true place. When the presence and your embrace gives people a reason to hold on to you. The smartest thing anyone ever told me is something I tell myself so much because it hurts so much to hear and I still forget it. Robert, you make me apologize for things about myself I do not want to apologize for. Just devastating. That's the cost of envy. And so I'm trading my envy for rejoicing. Because Fiona with an economics degree from Malaysia <coughs> is not an accident. She is a recipient of divine love and purpose. She can never be made to apologize. I cannot project my insecurities about my craving for dignity and call that a reason to hate anyone because we do not apologize for favor. Fiona with an economics degree from Malaysia is obviously a reason to rejoice. White people with Bibles are not accidents. I cannot ask anyone to apologize because no one is going to apologize because we do not apologize for favor. And so I am invited to an action by grace through faith. I am invited to rejoice. And I cannot ask God to apologize for me because I'm an elegant writer, which is a grace of God for the purpose of God. Being an elegant writer will never be good enough though to be my source of dignity. It'll never be enough to give me the confidence to notice and live and receive love without judgment. But maybe I'm worth embracing because I'm funny and creative. 
I'm so stuck in my windowless room. I ignore the emails after emails I get over the years that say, Robert, this was pretty cool. Thanks for being around. Because I never accepted that I too am a reason to rejoice. So my prayer this week is just so simple. God, thank you for letting me live life as me. But help my unbelief. Thank you for your invitation to abide, to rest in the miracle of my meanness and know that that is not an accident. Help me to believe your love and your words and your spirit are the place I live from and rest in. Thank you that I do not live alone. Thank you for the people I meet on Tinder and people with Bibles and a boss that thinks I'm an elegant writer and people with Apple watches and people that drink tequila sodas and people that drink craft beer and my roommates and my family and everyone who I'm around because they live in accordance with your gracious will just as they are. Help me to accept and believe what you say about them and therefore Help me to accept and believe what you say about me because this is a glorious mess and my place in it is worth having around if I'm worth embracing. And that means me embracing me, loving you to serve you. Give me the faith to rejoice in the mess that is me and the mess that is us. Awesome.